praise the Lord, everybody. We thank the Lord for uh, everybody uh, <clears throat> joining the call tonight. We're going to begin once again. We are continuing our study in uh, biblical beliefs, doctrines believers should know. We believe these are doctrines that every believer should know. That's the word of God. Today we're going to uh, begin in chapter 2. Chapter 2. Chapter 2 uh, speaks about the Godhead. The Godhead. Uh, we're going to look at this tonight. Okay. Father, we thank you. We give you the praise. We give the glory. We give you the honey. Holy Father, we thank you again for a day we've never seen before. We thank you for the strength you gave us today. We thank you for protection. We thank you for all things as well as they are. Holy Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you go with us tonight and study the word. Open up your word to us, Holy Father, we may understand. Holy Father, help us hide your word in our hearts so we may not sin against you, that we may obey your word. Holy Father, so you know, we know that you won't Proverbs that will obey you. As your word says, if you love me, you keep my commandments. Holy Father, we ask that ability through the power of the Holy Spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The Godhead, chapter 2, page 27. Once again, I will, may have to <clears throat> sort of move a little quickly tonight. And uh, so we can get to the whole chapter. As I move, I will call out the page number that I'm on. So if you uh, lose me, then uh, you know what page I'm on. I will name some scriptures too. If you don't get all the scriptures, uh, if you're not able to turn, just jot them down so you can uh, go back and study them later. And uh, we will probably move that hurry pace just so we can get through the entire chapter. The Godhead is also known as the divine nature. The divine nature of God, you know, his his uh his makeup, his character, uh his divine nature. We all have a nature. And the Godhead is the divine nature of God. A.W. Tozer began his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, with these words. He said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Because that's going to steer the rest of our lives. That's going to steer the, uh, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we speak, the way we live. Uh, if we have no regard for God or, or we don't believe he's real or we don't uh, or we think he's a big genie in the sky that's, that's, that's how we're going to live our lives but he is to be the object of our worship so it is essential to understand who he is the great three in one the great three in one page 28 the most complex and important truth about the Christian God is that he is triune. 
He is triune. In other words, that's, uh, that means he is three in one, which relates to the Trinity. We know that the, tri- the word Trinity is found in the Bible, and that uh, we know that the word Trinity is also a word that uh, is used by the Catholics a lot. And it's used to describe the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, oftentimes, we uh, don't describe God like that because we especially in our faith most of the time we often hear it said that uh, Jesus is God God is Jesus the Holy Spirit is Jesus and, and, and that's true in its essence but there are three different characters of God or three different persons. And since there are three different persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they all work in the same mission and with the same in the same union. But we need to know that Scripture, and we'll get into that a little bit deeper. Scripture talks separately about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Although they work in, in 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 unity, there are three, and, and that's known as he is known as the Triune God. The Trinity is a reference to the fact that God exists eternally in three persons: God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Though they are one in their essence, they are three in person. They are three in person. The good news for Christians baffled by the Trinity is that God is who he is apart from what we know. As Fred Sanders notes, reality comes first and then understanding follows it. So whether we understand the uh, triune or uh, God, he's not going to stop being triune just because we don't understand it. Or just because we don't believe he's three in one. Because he is, and he will continue to be who he is, whether or not we understand it. But like he said, he said, reality comes first. Who God is, that's, that's, that's what it is. But that reality is first. And then as we go along and walk with God and mature in God, then the understanding comes. Then we begin to learn more. And then we begin to, to uh, uh, realize who God is, at least a portion of them. Especially since the Bible never uses the precise term as Trinity, there are, are at least three key dimensions of the Trinity that believers should start with. Number one, they are they are the same character and attributes. God Father, God Son, God Holy Spirit share the same character and the same attributes. They work in concert with one another. They don't work against each other, but they work together in concert and complementing one another. Number three, they perform different functions. They perform different functions. God the Father created the world, the universe, and everything in it. God the Son, he sent to save us from our sins. To die for us. God the Holy Spirit, He said to live within us and to be a comfort for us until He comes back. 
they have different functions. They are equal in power and glory and honor indeed. They stand eternally in fellowship with one another, never dissenting in opinion or will. Yet when it comes to salvation, for instance, God the Father gives the Son, who becomes the incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit helps the Virgin Mary conceive Jesus and then leads him, anoints him, and fills him with his earthly ministry. So we see that they all function separately in different ways with different jobs. Now, we're going to look at a, a couple of scriptures here. Now, on page 29, this is one of the main scriptures where you can see the three uh, persons of the triune God at one in one place in that and in, in at one time in scripture. You gotta look at it uh separately and you gotta uh, dissect it and, and be able to see it because I've read it just several times before I've been able to see it that that the three persons of the Godhead is described right here in Mark one verses nine through eleven on page twenty nine. And it reads, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. That's that's God's son, Jesus. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. God, the Holy Spirit. The Spirit descending on him. And a voice from heaven and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. And that was the voice of God the Father. We have Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father. You know, I like to describe this scripture as God on top of God on top of God. Jesus, the Holy Spirit on his shoulder, and God the Father over top of him. So that's one scripture. Let's look at First uh, John real quickly. First John, First John four thirteen through fourteen. First John four thirteen through fourteen, and it reads: By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. So you have the Spirit, the Father, and the Son. 1 Corinthians 8 and 6. 1 Corinthians 8 and 6. Let's go up to First uh, Corinthians eight four. Let's read, read start at four and go down two six. First Corinthians eight four. Now, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know we know see that that there is no such thing as an idol in the world. That is that there is no god but one, one god, one god, 
for even if there are so-called other gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods, he says lowercase g, so he's talking about there's many idols that people may call gods with a lowercase g, but there's only one god, capital G. He says there are many gods, lowercase, and many lords, you know, lords as in people or things that rule your life. Uh, uh, back in the Bible, they said the wife used to call the husband's lords, the lords of the country or the lords of the city. That's what he's referring to. But when we speak of Lord, we speak of the sovereignty of God over our life. Verse 6. He said, yet for us, for us, for us that are saved, there is but one God, the Father, from whom we are, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. So that scripture right there shows the difference between God's Father and God's Son, Jesus Christ. So there are. Let's go to Ephesians. Let's we'll read one more. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. And there are several scriptures in the Bible like this. So when you read, uh, come across these type of scriptures, uh, don't just hurry past them, but notice how they describe the different uh, essences of the triune God. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body and one spirit. Capital S, the Lord. One spirit. Just as also you were called into one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith and one baptism. And one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So there you also have the spirit. One Lord being Jesus Christ and one God and Father. Verse 20, page 29, we also want to talk about his attributes. His attributes. Now these are his attributes or God's attributes. And there are his alone. Humans don't have these attributes. Humans don't have these characteristics nor these abilities he says what's in a name what's in a name when it comes to God however we aren't in any position to know him let alone give him a name apart from his revelation so we don't know who God is unless he describes himself to us unless he lets us know who he is uh, we, we, we have no way of knowing God. So when God decided to, to come down from heaven and to let his name rest in a place uh, among Israel, God had to allow or to let his name, let his glory dwell in a place. And the first place that he let his glory dwell was in Shiloh. You know, that was the first temple 
or dwelling or holy place of God was in Shiloh in the scripture in the time of Israel. He let his name there, let his name uh, dwell there. So what we know of God and of his character is because he allowed us to know it. And he had many names, page 30, uh, Yahweh, I am who I am. However, when we return to some of these ideals, this being a sign of God's self-sufficiency, he cannot, he cannot be surmised in a conventional Hebrew name. Just one name won't, won't, won't describe him all. So that's why there are several names in the scriptures that describe the different characters and the different uh, uh, characteristics of God. And number one, we're going to look at his omniscience. His omniscience, page 30. That is his all-knowing ability. His ability to know everything. As the Psalms 139 describes here. He says, Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And you are acquainted with all my ways. David knew this when he was this song. He said, you know everything about me. But we can't, there's nothing we can do, think, to hide from God. He he knows everything about us. He knows us better than we know ourselves. God's knowledge also functions in a reference to time. Admittedly, God's relationship to time is a complex subject in Christian theology. However, it is relevant because God is portrayed as one not forcibly bound by created dimensions such as space and time, but that he chooses to operate with with us in this way, namely in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit is a gift. So God chooses to operate within time, within time. Time really... It, it, it has no holes on God. You know, he is out. His, his being is outside of time. Uh, time has uh, a starting and an ending, a beginning and an ending. You begin the day, you end the day, you begin the year, you end the year. There, time has limit, but there is no limit, no beginning and no ending to God. So to reveal to us who he is, who Jesus Christ is, who the Holy Spirit is, he has to step into our time. He has to uh, uh, allow himself or his human body when he was on the earth of Jesus Christ to be limited to the confines of time. But outside of that, there is no limit to God. So he only did it for our, for, for us that we may know him. That we may know him. Page 31, his omnipotence, which is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. Omnipotence. He is all-powerful. First, God's power is without limit. Some, some uh, 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 skeptics may ask, can God make a rock that he cannot lift. Hmm? 
can God make a rock that he cannot lift? Hmm. No, he cannot make a rock that he cannot lift because his character would not allow him to do something like that. His perfection, for example, would lead him to exercise his power in a way that conflicts with either his character or his will. So there's no conflict in God. There is no, remember, there's, there's unity and there's a union in the, in the triune of God. So his character would not allow him to create a rock that he could not lift, although he is all-powerful. Second, God's power is further evidence that he is sovereign, that he is a sovereign God. You know, that word sovereignty means, it means the power to rule, the power to rule. And humans have a, have a problem with saying that somebody is sovereign over them. And that word sovereign is huge because it means that somebody has control over your whole life. Where you think, what you eat, what you dress, what you even where you live, where you work at. Whoever is sovereign has the power to rule over your life. You know, so they have the power to control your whole life. That's what God has. That's who God is. He's sovereign. He has the power to reign in our life. A sovereign ruler is able to do as he freely chooses. He rules over all, over everything, over everybody. Especially, he rules over the unsaved world too. They just don't know it or they just refuse to to live according to his word. And he being sovereign, allows them to go along in their sin or living how they want to live because he's, because he's allowing it. But the ones that are saved and the ones that have given their life over to Christ, we're saying that he's sovereign in our lives. So we live our lives according to his word. Now, when God freed us from the power of Satan, uh, and from the power of sin, he didn't, he didn't free us uh, from Satan's grip so we can just go off and live or do anything. No, no. He, he freed us from, from Satan as being our master. Uh-huh, uh-huh. He freed us from Satan being our master. So now he could be the master. So he, we really just changed partners. Uh, or, or, you know, Satan was our master. He was a harsh taskmaster, and God got us out of that. And now we, He is the master. So He freed us, so we could become servants of His, slaves to Him, because He's sovereign. And when we said that we uh, 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 are going to live for Christ and allow Him to be sovereign, we are saying that we are giving up the ability to make up our own minds in our life. You see that? When we say that he is tolerant over our lives, we are saying that we consciously are giving up our own ability to make up our own minds about our life. We now turn it over to God and he rules and super rules in our life. Omnipresent. That means he is present everywhere at the same time. 
just like Psalms 139 also says. He's present everywhere at the same time as omnipresent. David also says here, he said, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol or in hell, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. We can go nowhere without being in the presence of God. See that? We, we, we can't hide from him. Heaven, earth, space, hell. He's there. He's everywhere. Page 32, his immutability. His immutability. That means he's unchangeable. He's unchangeable. We change all the time. We change, like, we change, uh, we're emotional creatures. And uh, some more than others. Uh, one day we may be up, next day we may be down. One day we may be in good spirits, next day we may be in bad we change all the time. Well, his whole body is changing as you know it. But he does not change. Once a, one song writer wrote, hold on, he's I got he's I gotta see what type of condition my condition is in. Yeah. You know, that's where we are. Sometimes we just hey, wait a minute, hey, hey, I gotta see what type of condition my condition is in. Don't come at me like that. I said, hey. My condition may be in a different type of condition today. So you better check my condition before you come at me like that. But God doesn't change. He's always changing. It's immutability. <clears throat> Look at Numbers 23 and 19. It says, God, watch this. You got to watch this. I'm going to show you something. God is not a man that he should not lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? And then Malachi 3 and 6 says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17 Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And what this is saying is that God does not change. God does not change. Huh? He does not change. Now, now, what about the scripture, some of the scripture that says where God has changed his mind? Or God repented? You think, well, there's a contradiction there, right? No, no, there's not. Because look, at Numbers 23 and 19, where it says that he should, God is not a man that he should change his mind. Change his mind is the same Greek word for repent. In other words, this is saying God is not a man that he should repent. We said change his mind, but in the original, in the original Hebrew, it's, it says, it, it means to change his purpose 
from a divine decree to change his purpose from a divine decree. So in other words, it's not saying that God doesn't change his mind like we do, that God can't, or or it doesn't say that God cannot change his mind. What it's saying is that God will not change his divine purpose or decree. You know, in other words, uh, if God said it, it's going to happen. If God said it, it is going to happen. His divine purpose or his decree does not change. So he may decree that you be a minister or you be a, 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 a pastor or you be a teacher. That may be his purpose for your life. That would never change. He may allow you to go off for a while. He may allow you to not walk in your purpose for a while. He may allow you to run for a while, same way he did Jonah. But one of these days, he's going to reel you in because his divine decree or his divine purpose does not change. Now, his unchangeable character is much more his, his, I'm at the bottom of page 32. His unchangeable character is as much about his character as it is about his actions. You know, God willingly enters relationships with people that necessarily mean he deals with us in ways that may, at least on the surface, result in change. You know, because we are people. So he's going to deal with us in ways that does result in change. But a change in his response does not reflect a change in his essence or his character. Now, we want to see that his divine intention may change. His divine intention may change, but not his purpose, not his decree. Look at uh, at, uh, Exodus Let's look at Exodus 32 14. Exodus 32 14. What does it say? Exodus 32 and 14 says, So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. That's the same Greek word. I mean, same, well, that's not the same Greek word. It's the Hebrew word there. But it, it means the same thing as the Greek word changes mind. In other words, it's saying here that his divine intention may change. So, you know, he, he changed his mind about the harm he would do to his people. His intention, he intended to harm them. He intended to watch them all face of the earth because they were, wasn't being obedient. That was his intention. But he allowed himself to change his intention. But his divine decree or purpose that Israel would be his people, that never changed. He had to take them through the wilderness, around 40 years in the wilderness. Excuse me. Around 40 years in the wilderness for them to finally get us. Most of them had to die out. 
just so his divine purpose and decree will be performed. But when he like, he watch my face, I looked at Moses do. Moses prayed, Moses intervened for him, and he didn't do it. So his intention may change, but not his divine decree. I think I think I beat that one to death. I think we should all understand it by now. Okay. His per- he's personal and infinite. He's personal and he's infinite. Page 33. He's personal and he's infinite. There is no developing technology that will ever finally figure him out. The human mind reaches a point where it can go no further. Of course, because God is personal, He gives us His very Spirit to help us make sense of His Word. He gives us His Spirit so we can help us make sense of His Word. And without His Spirit, there's no way we could make sense of, of His Word. His Holy Spirit comes and gives us the understanding. Wisdom comes through the Spirit of God. Understanding comes through the Spirit of God. We don't just get it. We're not born with it. It comes through the Spirit. Page 34, His attributes. God and His will for us. God and His will for us. Okay, now these, these, now these, there's a second class of characteristics that God perfectly possesses. Yet what makes these unique from the aforementioned attributes is that they are ones God's people are also called to possess. These are also characteristics that we are called to possess. They are sometimes known as the communicatable attributes. Communicatable attributes. So, these are some of the characteristics that God wants us to show in our lives, although they belong to Him. And remember, He's personal and He's infinite. There's no stopping His existence. It's infinite. He wants us to take a part of Him. And be a part of him. And live as the sons and daughters of God in the earth. And these are also attributes and characteristics that God has passed on to us through the Imago Dei, his divine nature. His divine nature. These are things that live forever. Our abilities to think to reason, to love, huh? To 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 calculate, to communicate, to love, to relate to one another. This all comes from the attributes of God. The first one is His holiness. His holiness. God's most fundamental moral quality is His holiness. His holiness. 
God's holiness forms the basis of his commands and laws to his people. Even for New Testament Christians, the holiness language of the Old Testament is applied. For something or someone to be holy means it is to be set apart for special use. Holy means set apart for special use. It, it just say set above. We're not better than everybody else. We're not to look down on other people that doesn't live like we live, that doesn't understand God's word like we understand it. So we look down on uh, the, the sinner, uh, the, the hobo, the butt, uh, we're set apart. He didn't set us above nobody. All the ground is level at the cross, and we all stand there in need of a Savior. He is holy. He is holy. And He allowed us to be set apart for His use. We are told the fact that Without it, no one will see the Lord. Hebrews twelve fourteen. Holiness without, no man shall see the Lord. No, not in peace. So he wants us to be set apart for his use, for his purpose. He wants us to be different from the world. He wants us to be different from the people we work with. He wants us just us to be different from the people we go to school with it, and different from pe- people in our neighborhood set apart so they can look upon us, see our good works, and and what? And glorify the Father. Not glorify ourselves. Not that we get the glory, but to glorify God. That He gets the praise. That they think about, well, if, if they can live like that, then I can live like that. Or I want to live like that. Or I want to be like them. And that's it. And they have a thirst for for God. Wearing white, women in white. Uh, See, uh, back in the day, all the women would wear white. You know, from from their neck down to their toes. They're all in white. And, And you were not coming there. Ain't nothing else but white. If you could come there and something else, you couldn't sing in a choir. Because you wasn't holy, they used to say. You wasn't holy. You got to be in the holy white. You got to you got to button your shirt up. Every button on that shirt up top of your neck got to be buttoned. This is holy. This is holy in this church. That's not holiness. God is holy. We are not. But he sets us apart so he can use us and appear to the world that we are his and take a part of his holy nature. Love. Love is also an attribute of God that he shares with us. Love is the character of God. Love is who he is. Love is the whole character of God. That's why people may use the word love. They just use it all the time. I love everybody. I love you. I love the whole world. No. Love is God's character. All the reason he didn't destroy Israel in the wilderness is because he loved them. 
who has who what type of God or creator of, of the universe chooses to love his creation so much after they sin and keep transgressing his laws and keep going and pouring after other gods and keep, you know, forgetting about him. But he's still, he's bound to us in love because that's who he is. We don't have a tyrannical God like the devil, demon, or some of these fake gods we see on the TV, or Zeus, the different gods in the Greek mythology, uh, um, Hades. No, no. We have a God, a real God, that is that is love. That's who he is. Let's look at Exodus 34. If there was ever a scripture that 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 somebody would say, give me a scripture where, you know, God describes himself. You know how you have a autobiography where the author talks about himself or describes himself or says some things about himself in, in his writing. This verse verses of scripture is autobiographical because it describes God in his own words. In his own words. Like, like nobody can describe you better than you can describe you. You know, we may have a hard time talking about ourselves or trying to describe ourselves, but if we really had to, nobody's better at telling somebody else who we are what we're made of, what we like, what we don't like. Here, let's look at God's autobiographical description here. Just small portion. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. This is uh, in front of Moses. The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and the fourth generation. Then Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. See that? That is known as divine as as a, 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 a divine self-disclosure of God. The divine self-disclosure of God, also known as the theodicy of God. The theodicy of God. Or in other words, that's the justice of God. Love, you know, that's 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 who that's who he is. The justice and the love of God. Like when Jonah, God told Jonah to preach to Nineveh. Jonah didn't want to go because he knew that the theodicy or the goodness, the justice, and the mercy of God was going to show up. No, first of all, Jonah didn't want to go because he was prejudiced. 
He didn't feel like they were good enough. These Gentile dogs were good enough to be saved. That's the first reason he didn't want to go. And the next reason, uh, one of two among many, no doubt, was because he knew that God was going to be a merciful God because that's who you are. Your hatchet is going to show up. Your, your loving kindness, described as the hatchet, the, the, the steadfast love that makes up your character is going to show up because you just can't help yourself but to love. So Jonas, I don't go. I don't want to go. But that's who he is. That's who he is. And that's the only reason God hasn't destroyed a lot of us. Because of his effort. Loving kindness, steadfast love. Love stands between justice and judgment. That's why God didn't destroy Nineveh. That's why God didn't destroy us. Because judgment doesn't have the final say. If you repent, you can ward off some of the judgment that's coming your way. Because the character of God demands that his righteous law be punished. There'll be a judgment for breaking his righteous law. That's his divine character too. But his hesed or his love or the theodicy of God known to the theologians always shows up and he steps in like a divine lawyer that doesn't let justice happen. <laughs> but, but yeah, they did wrong and, and they got punished, but that's enough. Sometimes as growing up as a child, my, my daddy used to punish us and spank us. Sometimes my mother had to step in, okay, that's enough. That's enough. That's what his love does. And that's what people don't understand when they so flippantly say, I love like I love. I love everybody. Yeah. No, you do not. Love loves the homosexual with a godlike love, no funny stuff. Love loves the prostitute with a godlike love, no out of the way stuff. Love, that's what love does. And that's why I say, like, like his disciples said, Lord, increase my faith. Because we have to come up to that too. The justice and the judgment known as the theology of God is what we need in our lives, too. Let's go on to page 35. John, that, that scripture in the middle, John 13 and 33 to 35, says, Little children, he said, Yet a little while I am with you. You should seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. This is, I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Love, 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 love. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have loved one for the other. He didn't say, not how you dress. They're going to know you. 
Not that you got all wrapped up. They're going to know. Not what you eat. That they're going to know that you're his disciple. No. Not what day you worship on. If you worship on this day. No. They ain't got nothing to do with it. If you love one another. That's how they know that you're mine. justice of God. The justice of God, as we also sort of got into a little bit when we were talking about how uh, the theodicy of God. Theodicy is spelled T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. T-H-E-O-D-I-C-Y. The first four letters, T-H-E-O-Theo. That means God. Theo. Theodicy of God. Anyway, it's, we spoke a little bit about, about his justice. And we see that we see at the bottom of page 35. He is called the righteous judge. There's only one righteous judge. There is no righteous judge downtown. There is no righteous judge that sits on the Supreme Court. There is no... There, there is none that is righteous, no, not one. He is the singular righteous judge. You ain't gonna get a righteous judgment from this world. You may get a a, a, a fair shake, a fair deal, the best you can, but. A righteous judgment is going to come from God. And if God moves upon one of these people that sits on the bench to give you a righteous judgment, it's because of him. But they got to be, they got to be awfully saved. The Holy Ghost coming out of their ears, their eyes, their nose, uh, just to give you a righteous judgment. He is the righteous judge. Judges are charged with upholding the law. They are charged with dispensing judgment, justice. The problem is that human courts will always fail to perfectly administer justice. That's why you have so many innocent people sitting behind bars for years. Yes, some of them are are, are put there uh, by mistakes, you know, and, and not knowing that where the police officers and stuff made mistakes. But most of the people that have been uh, convicted wrongfully, it wasn't a mistake. It's because human judges fail to adequately administer justice. Because from God. That's why the Lord wants us to pray to him. Once again, I'm going back to it. When he became the sovereign Lord of our lives, he wants us to pray to him for justice. Just like Pastor Moses said a few weeks back, she said, pray the Lord of the harvest, that he will send labors into the harvest. That's one thing that God had such an issue with Israel. was because that they stopped worshiping him and serving him. He said they stopped coming, they stopped 
following after me. Or they stop loving him. They stop seeking him. He said, now they pray to their idol God. So he wanted them to pray to him. They were looking to the Egyptian God of the harvest, the Egyptian God of wealth and money. And, he, and God was like, I just delivered you from bondage in Egypt. I brought you out of those chains from Egypt, but you're going back to Egypt and you're serving Egyptian idol gods. And you plan to them to send you rain. You're praying to them to send you a strong harvest. He said, but you used to pray to me. You used to get your source and your strength from me. That was the issue. They, they, they turned away from him being sovereign in their lives to these idols. And that's what God is saying to us today. He wants us to pray to him. Seek justice from Him. Seek our health and strength from Him. Seek what we need and talk to Him. And, and, and don't make a, a decision in life without going to our sovereign Lord first. He, he don't want us to get up in the morning and, and, and decide, Lord, what I'm, what am I going to do back this time? He wants us. He wants us to pray to Him. But no, no, we don't exit stage left right. When it comes to God making decisions in my life, we don't exit stage left right when it comes to being just to other people in our lives. We hooking and, and crooking, we scheming. We are we are we are uh, cheating our own family members for for that mighty dollar dollar for money. That's the only thing you love is money. But when, when, when you die and they throw that cold, cold earth in your face and when they throw them rocks on your cancer, ashes to ashes, dust to dust, your money ain't going to help you. Hey! God said, call to me now. Because the night comes. No man can work. Page 36. His, he has many other more attributes. Many, 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 many. Many, many, many. He's an awesome God. Awesome. Page 37. Awesome is a word often talked about in our, in our uh, contemporary time. Unfortunately, it's a present day usage which often diminishes its important, appropriate reference. And the reference is the Lord God. Really, the only person that we need to be calling awesome is God. Leroy's four lines captures the concern best here at the top of page 37. It is true that God is remarkable, mind-boggling, or extraordinary. But as we have seen, these words do not get at the heart of what is meant by either the biblical or the historical use of the word awesome as it was used in the English language. 
perhaps the best solution for the problem would be for us to make frequent and proper use of words like awesome and holy. We need to confront people with that view of God that Moses, Isaiah, and Paul had when they were encountered by God as told in Exodus, Isaiah, and Acts. When the Christian is confronted with true awesomeness of God, he or she will be ready for true worship and true service. It's just like Jeremiah asked, well, no, Jeremiah stated. He said, Lord God, there is nothing too hard for you. Or there is nothing too difficult for you. Or, one translator said, there is nothing too extraordinary for you to do. And then a little bit later on in the same chapter, God asked back in a rhetorical sense. He asked Jeremiah in the same chapter, is there anything too hard for me to do? No, Lord God, there's nothing too hard for you to do. That's awesome. Not that you found a parking spot in Walmart. Oh, awesome. I thought, no. He's awesome. At the bottom of page 37, then we're done for tonight. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may be able to do all the words of this law. Deuteronomy 29 and 29. I'm going to read that again. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. See? That we may obey. His word is revealed that we may obey. This word is revealed to us that we may obey. Not that we are saved because of our obedience. No, we are saved because of the love of God. But that love requires a response from us. It requires a response. This is obviously why such such books as these are written. However, when we lack understanding, we obey the revealed word and pray for more wisdom to obey this mighty, sovereign God. You're not going to understand everything. But what we do understand, that's what we're supposed to obey. And wait and pray for further wisdom, further knowledge that God may give us other teachers that God may send us. That's why we need one another. That's why we need books like these to help us understand. It's not that, oh, that's not a Christian book, or that's not a Pentecostal speaking in tongues, Holy Ghost book. Hey! Over this way. If this book is speaking about the scriptures and helping us understand God's word, this is a tool that God sent us to use so we can be built up and be edified as the sons and the daughters of God so we can go out in this world and help these sinning souls that are going to hell. Plus, where else 
can we have 10,000 instructors at our very fingertips? The Godhead is divine nature. Holy Father, we thank you. We give you the praise. We give you the glory and honor again. Holy Father, we thank you again for the jewels, the pearls, the gems found in your word. It sparkles more and more brighter until that final day when you yourself shall split the sky and there will be no more need for sun or light or moon for you will light the whole world. Thank you, Holy Father. And hasten us in preparation to be ready for you on this great day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good night. Study chapter 3. See you next week.